I think it's a way of thinking, you know, thinking by doing, um, you know, show and ask instead of show and tell, you know, sort of a way that we learn and iterate. Um, and so I think that's, to me, that's critical thinking. It's where we can start manipulating the ideas and really not taking them at face value. Welcome to episode number 42 of the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty, and today we have Michael McManus joining us. Uh, Mick is the Chief Community uh, and Impact Officer at HireGuide. He's a Senior Advisor and Leadership Coach at BCG and co-author of the 2012 book, Trillions, Thriving in the Emerging Information Ecology. Thank you so much for joining me, Mick. Andrew, thanks for having me. I love it. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so this is episode number two in our little mini series that's entitled Nobody Wants to Think Anymore, uh, which is an exploration <laughs> of the often misunderstood skill of critical thinking. Uh, but with, with all my guests, I, I like to start with a, a very simple but insightful question, which is, Mick, what is your story? Hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I think if you were to define me, I'm a maker. I just love making things. And I stumbled onto it pretty early in life. My dad was a mechanic and my mom was a biologist and a school teacher. And so the dinner table conversations were interesting, uh, because my dad hadn't even graduated from high school at the time. You know, he was just a mechanic on cars, but he taught me how to take apart anything. And then yeah. my mom at dinner would, would sort of uh, teach us all language every day. Like we'd learn about a new scientific thing or we, he'd say, well, what does that word mean? And we'd, we'd learn about it. And it was just a lively space. And, um, and, and sort of walking the alleys of Chicago were, were like um, a wonder box. I mean, it was just like, oh, there's an old bike. And my dad would teach me how to weld and I'd turn it into a big unicycle, you know, or whatever. So um, I learned a lot about taking a lot of things apart and putting them back together again in new ways and sort of deconstructing and reconstructing things. And I ended up with a degree in industrial design. Product design is what the way people normally think of it as. But if you, do, if you just make one thing like a chair, you know, you can be an artist and a craftsman. But if you need to make a hundred of those chairs or a thousand of those chairs, you need to figure out what is chairness. And you need to kind of step back and kind of kind of think through the the architecture of what a chair is. And you've got to think about how it would be manufactured, how it would be recycled, how it might be purchased, how it might delight somebody. And that really got me excited because it was kind of like mad science. I got to be an inventor and play with things. And I was in product design for a while. And then I learned how to design large experiences. And I stumbled into um, co-creating a company called Elan in the, in the 90s where we took digital things and we put them in physical places. So we'd, we'd take digital tech that was coming out, which was, you know, this is sort of early web. So that web was fairly slow. Um, but, but we had the stuff called Macromedia Director and other tools that we could like use <laughs> to, to yeah. make the physical world work, if you remember that. Yeah. And ultimately, I ended up uh, convincing um, a client that we would actually help build the second biggest structure at the Olympics in Sydney, Australia for the 2000 Olympics. And we designed the whole thing. And we ended up had a, having a goal of 250,000 people would go through this space. It was the athlete and family pavilion. It was where athletes and family got together securely, but also fans could come. We called it rendezvous. It turns out calling someday rendezvous at Olympics is good because then people would say, Hey, let's meet at the rendezvous. Ah, nice. And, um, but this, this was wonderful. And we had to do it in less than a year. And we ended up with a million people going through it in 15 days. So it was just this wild experience. Uh, and then I ended up joining a group called Maya, which stands for Most Advanced Yet Acceptable. 
And it was it was a terminology coined in the 1930s by by an industrial designer named Raymond Lowy who came over from France, and he helped design our way out of the depression. And he said, if you could find the most advanced technology yet acceptable for normal people, you had found the Maya zone. And we we practiced that. So I was the owner and um, president and CEO of Maya, one of the owners for uh, for 13 years. And uh, it was just a delightful experience. And then uh, Maya was acquired by Boston Consulting Group. And then after that acquisition, uh, they approached me and asked if I'd be a senior advisor. And they've got people, uh, a wonderful senior advisor program that is basically uh, retired partners, retired customers, and weirdos who come in through acquisition like me. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's just a delightful uh, group of people who... Who kind of never really wanted to retire they, they retired they, they did the fun stuff and then they they were still hungry and they were still excited about things and so they wanted to keep engaged and and so that's what i'm doing today yeah that's awesome i your your story reminds me so of so many things from my childhood uh one of my favorite classes was in uh in the ninth grade uh, i was one of uh, six kids that was picked to uh, uh, go into this uh, small engine repair class, and ah, uh, right, and and the whole class was here's a lawnmower. <laughs> uh, we want you to take apart. Yeah. The, we want you to take the whole thing apart and put it back together. And a passing grade is pulling the rip cord and getting the thing to start. <laughs> it actually works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, mine uh, turned over and I, I got a passing grade. Uh, and then my, 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 uh, my uncle Lindsay, uh, was my quote unquote favorite uncle of uh, my, my dad's two mm. brothers, uh, because his children, he had children and, uh, my other uncle did not. So when you're, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of gravitate toward mm -hmm. that fa that, that family environment. But Lindsay could make anything. He, he was just this guy that could, he made us go-karts from the weirdest stuff. And I, uh. I, I I, I learned uh, I learned so so much from him. Uh, so, th thank you so much for sharing that. If if you had to pick one that's real accelerant for your career, what mm. what would that accelerant be? I think uh, you know there were so many people who helped me in my career, and and uh, I'll pick one that that just I think really pivoted me in in my in my world. Um, I was working at this organization that I had co-founded co called Elan in the 90s. And we had just finished the Olympics. And I was just like, wow, I never want to do that again. It was, it was just crazy intense and, you know, coordinating around the world and everything. It was amazing, but it was also uh, really intense. And I was giving a talk about how hard it was to get this digital physical structure to be stood up and actually just run for 15 days. Like just not have a blue screen of death on a 60 foot side of a building. Like that would be great. But technology wasn't ready for that. You know, it, it, it turns out that you had to use this general purpose thing called a PC. And PCs were kind of garbage at everything. You know, yeah. they weren't, you couldn't buy like a pound of computing or a hundred feet of display. You, you had to buy these things and then convince them to work. And so they were always breaking. And I was complaining about that at, at Carnegie Mellon at a, at a big software engineering institute event. And then the next person who came up and spoke was this guy, Dr. Peter Lucas. And he was a cognitive psychologist and he was talking about building ecologies of information devices, trillions of them, and that we would at some day, we'd be living in the information. 
And I just was like, what the heck are you talking about? What do you mean ecologies of information? He was using all these biological metaphors mm. and how, how, um, you know, how it would have to work because nature has already solved and built complex information systems, you and I and, and the world um, over 3 billion years. So we should learn from, if you want to do something hard, go, go look at how somebody else already did something hard and biology had been there. Yeah. So um, about a month later, I met him at that conference. You know, I said, hi, I was one of the speakers. So we were at the speaker dinner and he knew about what I was doing and the, and the work from the Olympics. Anyway, I just sent a blind email to him. I wasn't even sure it was the right email because it turns out there were two Lucases in, in the company that he was running. But I just blindly sent an email and I said, hey, I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Um, but it seems like you're doing some amazing work and really doing real research, like deep research. And I felt like I was doing things that were kind of sexy and cool and I could make people, you know, have a theatrical dramatic experience or, or even the products I could make people love a product, but, but they were doing really deep research. So I sent this blind email just saying, I'm, you know, do you know anything else going on in the city? What's happening? And he said, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do in his response. I'm trying to figure out my own, you know, situation. Why don't we get together for a drink? So we got together for a drink. And as we were talking, you know, it turns out that he was looking for a CEO to take over his job. And, and he asked me to come in and I met the other, the other founders and owners. And, um, and January 20, 2001, I became the CEO of Maya. Wow. And it was from a blind email. Wow. And, you know, just a, an amazing journey. And, and uh, I found out, this is the end of this, I found out, um, you know, I did things very differently than Pete. Pete was a, you know, a, a, a cognitive psychologist and a deep researcher. And I was this kind of a little bit more crazy doing things a little differently. And I just was about make it and then we'll learn about it and stuff. And the head of sales and marketing apparently was going into his office. And so was the head of HR. And so was the head of like human sciences and the head of uh, engineering. Probably once every few months saying, Mickey's breaking the company, Pete. <laughs> like what... <laughs> You know, you would never have done it this way, Pete. You're, he, you know, you ran it for 12 years and it's amazing. And now Vicky's taken over and he's breaking the company. Anyway, I didn't hear about that for about two years. And, you know, Pete gave me, you know, full carte blanche and he went back to being a researcher. And um, at one point I was talking, I became friends with the head of marketing and sales. And, and she said to me, oh yeah, we used to go in all the time, <laughs> you know, just saying, you know, you're breaking the company and this isn't the way Pete would do it. You know, I said, Oh, that's interesting. Um, so then I went in and talked to Pete and I said, Pete, you know, Susan just told me that, that like for years, you know, for two years, people were like, Oh my gosh. And he's like, look, it was 2001, nine 11 happened. We lost a whole bunch of business for, from people who were in New York that were, they were doing things. People stopped traveling. Yep. I didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to do. But you were trying things and it was a, the world had changed. And he said, if I didn't give you enough rope, I would never find out if you made a noose or if you made a ladder. <laughs> and so I needed to know that I could walk away and be a researcher again. And, and so I, ha I couldn't second guess every one of your decisions. I needed to trust you before maybe I even knew if I could trust you. And I, I love that. And he taught me so much about leadership and, and about, you know, trust that it really impacted everything I did after that. Yeah. Wow. What, what a story that, uh, in, 
in uh, in my first book and in in the next book, you know, trust is just central to to the conversation, mm. and so much damage is done when we start from a position of skepticism and and mistrust. It really is. Uh, so yeah. th- thank thank you so much for that. I, I think that's a a wonderful segue into the one of the central questions today, which is. Uh, you know, what does the term critical thinking mean to you? Hmm. You know, um, you know, I think, I think it's when you can actually take something and step back from it and hold it in your hand, you know, the idea, the concept, the, the, the thought or the, the challenge and be able to like manipulate it. Like, can I abstraction ladder on it? Can I go from from how we're doing something to like why we're doing something. And can I kind of step even farther back? Well, why does that matter? And then can I come down from a different angle? And, you know, well, if that's really what we're trying to do, maybe a different how would happen. So it's a way of kind of almost jumping up and down levels of meta-ness, the concept, and being able to manipulate this. And I think critical thinking sometimes happens through doing. I think there's critical making. Yeah. Where the act of you building something, not because you're making it for pretty, but you're actually trying to learn something like, like you learn because the wood teaches you something or the metal teaches you something, you know, it, it has a way that it has a grain that it wants to work. And it's actually, it's, it's showing you how to work. And when you don't use that, that knowledge from the, from the medium, whatever the medium is, whether it's a video thing or whether it's a, a physical thing or a digital thing, if you don't use the medium, you're working across purpose, you know? And so I think there's critical making and there's critical thinking. And we don't talk enough about critical making. It's just more, more esoteric, but I think it's a way of thinking, you know, thinking by doing, um, you know, show and ask instead of show and tell, you know, sort of a way that we learn and iterate. Um, And so I think that's, to me, that's critical thinking. It's where we can start manipulating the ideas and really not taking them at face value. You know, being able to to step back, and I, I think critical thinking is related to metacognition. I think metacognition is another another sort of complementary piece of this, which is looking at the thinking about your thinking. You know, uh, sort of tapping into the crowd within you. You know, by being able to step back and say, "Oh, okay, wait, I guess I'm falling for this bias." I wonder what would happen if I, you know, if I looked at it from ninety degrees and I did I did something else. And I think um, they teach they teach metacognition in, you know, at, at the war college for commanders. And they teach, you know, because there's this danger of falling into the fog of war. Or there's danger of fog, falling into um, believing everything your brain is telling you. And a lot of times your brain just tells you goofy things. And you need to say, <laughs> thank you, brain. <laughs> I'm going to put that idea on a little leaf and let it just float by yep. and say, thank you. I don't have to act on everything my brain does. Right. And I think that that critical thinking and metacognition intersect in some ways. And deep reasoning is is maybe the third part of it, which is where you don't just learn a piece of information because we have the this power law of forgetting. If we learn a piece of information, we soon forget where the source was, the criticality of it, and we only remember it if it's if it's familiar to us, which is why propaganda works well for for, for the world or doesn't. Um, but when you have deep reasoning, you actually need to apply the knowledge. So when you read a new book, if you needed to teach some essence from that new book to someone else, you have to like reason deeply about it to figure out what the essence is, what, what, yeah. the, what the hidden knowledge is, and do it. And so, so I think those are all bundled together in my head as, as critical thinking. 
Yeah, I like uh, so in in continue in the world of continuous improvement, there's the concept of the five whys, and I think what yeah. you know what I just heard uh, from you is uh, the five whys on steroids, uh, essentially <laughs> a, mul- yeah. a multi-dimensional five whys. Um, yeah. So that that's really cool. It, is there a, a story from your past, uh, your career, when critical thinking was just essential to a particular success or or you were able mm. to really avoid some uh, big failure that was looming? Well, I think I, I've got a, an example that um, that was another big game changer, really, that uh, when I was running Maya, um, we would occasionally do research research for for the Department of Strategic Surprise, like DARPA. And we would do research, but we actually owned the ability to use that intellectual property for commercial purposes, for other things. We, we would do this research for other purposes, and, and, um, and we would have access to it. And every once in a while, it would percolate within our company, and someone would say, whoa, like, I think that could be a new company. And, and um, you know, sometimes this was just interesting research, but sometimes it was actually really, really um, important work that was going to turn out to be important. And one of those things that happened was we, we started helping out teaching human-centered design to uh, one of our customers that was actually working on this research project. And we, we would bundle up all the things we knew about human-centered design or design thinking. And we, we put together a little workshop. And they loved it so much that they, were, they asked us to actually teach it to a whole bunch of, of their engineers and a whole bunch of their, their program managers and everything. We started doing that. And it was just kind of a fun side thing where it was useful because they would, they would do amazing things when they were there, but they felt like when they got back to their offices, they didn't seem to have the way to unlock things as much. And so we started teaching it. And we had an offsite um, retreat where we were exploring some problems and some, some topics about the company. It's, you know, our company and our, our collection of companies as we were growing and, and spinning out these new companies that came out of research. And, um, and at one point, there was this conversation between the people who had actually built the curriculum with me to, to create this, this workshop. We called it the Maya Institute originally. Um, but it was just a, it was just a name for, for what we were doing, a, a service that we, that we were doing for a customer or two. They said, you know, maybe we should make this its own company. And internally, you know, I was the CEO and this was a cool thing. And it was actually pretty high margin. Like we, we, we would, we would teach the classes. People would want to then sign up their whole teams and people wanted to get certified and we had all this stuff and, um, and turning it into an own company would be kind of like giving away both my customers who, who were using it as well as, as this kind of high margin thing. And so that there was a really critical discussion that we had about, should this be a new service at Maya? Should this be a separate company and then have its own pathway? Yeah. And, and I think we had to really apply critical thinking. I felt like I spent a lot of time playing out the, the pros and cons of both approaches. And what we ended up ultimately doing was, was spinning it out as its own company. And so it became something called the Luma Institute. And you can look up lumainstitute.com and you'll find it. We've taught over 80,000 people around the world how to do human-centered design. It never would have happened like that if it was just the service inside of Maya. I can guarantee it. Because what I found was it would have distracted me. It would have distracted the company from what our core value was. And but, But by making it a new company, 
you know, and we did, we, we assigned, we, we, we helped get them a line of credit early on so that they could like, they could, they could handle and weather storms. Um, we helped them actually take on some of our customers to do this stuff. What we found was that the customers would actually learn about human centered design and then they would do a lot more themselves. But what they would do is they would come back to us for the really hard stuff. So we kind of went up the food chain a little bit and we would work on the really hard stuff. And then Luma would teach a lot more people to appreciate putting people first right. and being human centered. And, and so it, it, they just uh, had their, I don't know, 10th or 12th anniversary. They were just acquired by Mural, you know, the, the infinite whiteboarding tool and everything. Yep. Um, and so they're going strong and the Luma system is now being built into Mural's kind of um, operating system for collaboration and collaborative co-creation. And uh, that whole group of people had ownership. We gave them sweat equity, you know, so they, they actually built built their own capacity and their, their entrepreneurial nature. They did a bunch of stuff. I would look back and be like, Chris, I don't know why you're doing that. Don't do that. And then he would be like, thank you for the advice. And then he would go do it. And then it would work out way better than I thought. <laughs> you know, so it was sort of, if you love something, set it free. And, and trust, again, trust that something could happen. But it was a really, that was a tricky a lot of soul searching, a lot yeah. of critical thinking to try out different like scenarios of what, what would happen, you know, what right. ifs. Right. Um, and I, I could never have predicted how well it turned out. My yeah. what ifs never went that far. Yeah. So, so you, you've introduced this concept of uh, human centered design, design thinking. Mm. I'm sure that we're going to have listeners who really don't know what that is um, or, mm. or the, 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 the language is unfamiliar or foreign. Uh, can you just take a couple of minutes and educate us on what, sure. uh, what those concepts are? Well, I think, you know, design thinking was kind of a, a really convenient handle to put on this collection of methods. And it turned out to be maybe a marketing campaign for design and, and for, for actually putting people first in some ways, you know, and, and, uh, but, but at its essence, it's co-creating with people. It's saying, let's not just look at shareholders, but let's look at the stakeholders, yeah. all the different elements in the, in the picture. Let's try to understand those, those archetypal personas. What do they care about? What keeps them up at night? What's the unmet or un, unasked for need that is, that is huge, but it's hidden in the surface that we wouldn't normally find out from a survey where people just answer based on their best days. We'd find out by going out and doing contextual inquiry or some ethnographic research or something that's basically a component of human-centered design. And so you can imagine there's a collection of methods that have to do with looking and listening that are, that are, that are both classic research methods, but also participatory methods that you can actually learn something from. Then there's a collection of methods that have to do with understanding. Like, what does the system look like? What's, how do we abstraction ladder? What are the components? What are the nouns and verbs in the system? And then how do we step back and kind of look at this socio-techno system? So it's not just looking at the plumbing of the technology, but it's looking at how people interact with that stuff. And so that's, that's the understanding part. And then there's the making, like making critical making and making to do and you know, build out a storyboard, do a, do a war game and simulate a year and a week or simulate a week and a day, both of the technology and of the user experience and the, and, the, and the way people would do things, which ultimately leads to new business models and insights there. And then there's the advancing, you know, advance the person because they're learning new skills and they're feeling a new sense of mastery, advance the team so that they actually feel like they're more empowered or advance the organization or the network. And that's actually why we called it Luma to, to run out the program, Luma stood for look, understand, make, advance. And it was about these, these, these methodologies. 
Um, but that's, that's, that's the whole point of it is a lot of people learn about being creative, learn about being innovative. But when you actually say, okay, but what are the methods you use? Yeah. It turns out you need methods for looking, for understanding, for making, for advancing, for, you know, looping this around. And some of those methods really have to put people first because people, we could discover amazing things if we would just listen. Yeah. <laughs> and if we would just observe, just shadow people, see how they really work, not, not their perfect day. But like you walk a factory floor and you actually see that they've like strung up some little some little thing over here to a thing over there. And you, you say like, while you're walking the factory floor, why do you do that? Well, it turns out the maintenance engineer kept hearing the bearing going bad and he needed a way to signal that like that was happening. And so, okay, so they, people were hacking things. Yeah, yeah. But you'd never see that if you, if you looked at a specification for what the factory engineers do. Or you'd never see that if you looked at the existing system. Existing system had all these post-it notes all around the edges. <laughs> and you'd say, why did you put the post-it note up there? Oh, yeah, that's because the system doesn't let me put this in there. So I have to remember to go to this other program. Well, that's a huge opportunity to unlock value if you just would pay attention. And so so that's uh, that's in a nutshell. That's that's human-centered design. Yeah, so it sounds like, uh, you know, that and continuous improvement and critical thinking, they're just all kind of uh, munged together. And the the manager, yeah. the manager in me is uh, listening to this uh, and my memory of all the other managers that I've known, uh, probably 80, 90% of them need uh, a, a crash course in this uh, because, uh, you know, kind of that, the, the <laughs> oh, I think so. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The directive, my way or the highway kind of manager who is much more prevalent than mm. we would like to think um, could could really learn something from this, even if it's just the listening part uh, of of the equation. Yeah. Um, yeah th oh, I, I remember so many times we would go and say, you know, how do you currently find out about how to add new features to this product? Let's say it was a uh, uh, an ex excavator by Bobcat. In fact, they, they were one of our customers. And, you know, we'd, we'd say, well, how do you learn about what, how do you, it's a love brand. People love Bobcats. They tattoo a Bobcat on the side yeah. of their arm. I mean, they really, it's a, it's a beautiful little small muscle. Um, but we said, how do you learn about how do you add new products, new features, things like that? And they say, oh, our salesmen go out and ask questions or we send out surveys. And we said, well, why don't we actually just wander with you through a city where people are using bobcats and let's do some contextual inquiry. Let's just, you know, and we'll, we'll have a trunk load full of like little mini Tonka toys of bobcats and things, you know, if they're willing to talk to us for 10 minutes, we'll give you a Tonka toy. And they were like letting us sit inside of the, of the operating system. They were like, you'd notice they were like welding like a level inside the, the, the thing because bobcat didn't have a level. So they had to like level a field, but they were like bolting their mm. own thing on there because there was no thing. You'd find them, dragging fiber optic cables down a trench after they trenched something and they were actually tilting the the bobcat up on one one tread wrapping a cable around it wrapping it to the to the fiber optic and hitting the gas and using the the well it's like wait why don't you just put a takeoff wheel on there and now it would be a new accessory for doing this stuff you know right, but right. they never saw this so we showed them the footage the next day and then we had them build cardboard prototypes of what what it was but you sh you should have heard the product managers and the people from, you know, support, they're like groaning. They're like laughing out loud. They're like, oh my gosh, look at that. You know, they had never heard about this stuff because they were like typically doing like surveys and, you know, nice 
people sitting around a room asking them what they wanted, they never discovered unmet needs, unvoiced yeah. needs. Yeah. But just by going out and doing a little human-centered design, it radically changed their approach to it. And I, and I would say they, they credit that kind of effort with really helping them think differently about where they're going and how they have integrated things like the IOT into their systems and everything now. Yeah. So I, I've, uh, the Bobcat example is great. I've been trying to convince my wife, uh, to, to, uh, to, to help, to, to let me buy a Bobcat. We live on, <laughs> we live on 40 acres and, uh, my, my brother-in-law is an excavator and I'm like, I, I want one of those. I, I, I don't have, have any have tattoos on my one. body, but uh, you really need a Bobcat. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so Mick, we're, 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 we're uh, coming close to time here, but I got a couple more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the first is uh, we need. I think we both are in violent agreement that we need to lift critical thinking skills in the general mm-hmm. population uh, for an, a whole host of reasons. Uh, but how, in in your best estimate, how, how do we actually do that? How do we move the needle? Mm. Well. One of the things I'm really excited about, and it came out of MIT in two different efforts that were going on at MIT, and, and it's sort of um, grown to be, both, they both grown to be worldwide. Um, and so this is for earlier development. So when you're in high school or when you're in um, uh, grammar school, uh, there's a program called First Robotics. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with First Robotics, but it was created by Dean Kamen, and it was created by this amazing uh, teacher at, um, at MIT. And they said, um, why don't we turn you know, the design of engineering systems and robotic systems, why don't we turn that into a sport? Because when people make it a sport, you know, then you're talking about the celebrities of the yeah. sport, the, the superstars of it. Why don't we make critical thinking and engineering and the idea of trying to factor and design this stuff into this? And all, most of the robots will lose because it's a competition like a sport. They're, they'll announce a new field every year and you, you, know, you end up having bracketed competitions all the way to the point where it's at like Ford Field in Detroit and it's down in, in Houston, Texas at the big, at the big stadium for the, for the grand championship. Um, but it's amazing. They have Lego League, which is what, down for the, for the younger kids. And then they've got you know, um, leagues that are for high schools. Um, you you end up with your parents helping out or or mentoring, but these students are amazing. They're learning critical thinking, and they're they're learning a million ways to try things. They're learning what I would call open mindset, and 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 you know the approach that that Carol Dweck and others have talked about, where they're learning that that intelligence is not fixed, mm. and that instead, not don't celebrate, wow he's a genius. Celebrate the struggle. The struggle is when you're learning. And learning how to try different, well, every time you try something that doesn't work, you learn something that got you closer to it working. So celebrate the struggle and learn how to ask questions. Be comfortable asking for help instead of when you're, you know, you say intelligence is fixed. Well, I'm just not good at math or I'm just yeah. not good at something. That's a terrible thing. Oh, so, so I think First oh Robotics is, is doing a wonderful job. And many of those graduates, it's been going for 25 years and there are hundreds of thousands of kids around the world that compete every year now. So, so that's been going. Another thing that came out of, out of um, a few of the same people, but some different people, is something called iGEM, which is an international genetic engineered machine competition. So I-G-E-M. And again, high school kids and this time um, college undergraduates. And if you were to look at like the most successful, I think he was just ranked um, in the top 10 
uh, business leaders last week or something like that is the is one of the founders of Ginkgo Bioworks, which is out in Boston, and it's actually like a synthetic biology platform company. He started doing iGEM as as a student, you know, and and they actually have to build things and they have to document like what are the ethical implications of this new you know this new organism I'm building. So they you know they would build things like you know E. coli, which is a stomach bacteria that they would insert um, the scent of bananas and the scent of mint. And so basically as E. coli was growing, it would smell like bananas, but it would smell like mint when it was ready to be harvested. So they could go out and play Frisbee and then come back and kind of know. But, but they have to document these new things. And it's leading to an entire generation that are both applying this critical thinking and this creative problem solving. But they're doing it on the cutting edge. I mean, this is the emerging world, the, the biological world and, and designing with nature and a respect for nature and a respect for life. So those are two two approaches that I, that give me hope. Certainly, I would say Luma is something everybody should should take. I've I've never seen someone go through that Luma program and not feel like empowered. Um, managers, it, you just tell them there's really something there. They feel it's very fluffy, but then they go and they learn, and and they were like, whoa, okay, I can do some of this. And I've seen people who came out, you know, who started at you know General Dynamics as a as a senior program manager engineer. And then they they come out two years later, they're like, I think I want to actually get certified as a practitioner for the human-centered design stuff. Like, this could be my new career path. And it's just because you're giving them tools. You're giving them ways of doing things, but you're helping them apply them right away so that they're able to, to, to manipulate and play with the world and learn from people. Yeah, every year, they're the... The, the robotics, uh, I, I believe it's uh, either that same program takes over the, the, the lacrosse center, which is a 5,000 yeah. seat arena here. I'm sure they do. And, yeah. You know, but how, how do we make some of this more accessible to individuals mm. who, you know, come from more challenging uh, challenged backgrounds. We we need to grow, you know, yeah. programs like that. Uh, you know, I, I think about my local boys and girls club here, and the mm -hmm. wonderful things that they do. You know, is is it is it all about getting organizations like that connected in with uh, the organizations? I think that sometimes about? they don't even know these exist. You know, I I was at a, at a conference recently that was about education. And it was some uh, inner city schools in Pittsburgh, in Chicago, and in, in an old steel town called Elizabethtown. And they were talking about what they were doing. And they have 3D printers. And they actually uh, had a competition for iGEM. And they were, they were like the first black you know, inner city class to actually make it to the semifinals. And the rest of the educators that were in the audience had never heard of it. Yes. And, and here were people who have, they're not prep schools. These are like public yeah. schools, you know, and they were doing it. So I think a part of that is, is getting people to know about it. There's, a, there's an initiative that came out of Pittsburgh called Remake Learning. And actually, I think this week is Remake Learning Days in multiple cities across the country. And it's basically thousands of events going on where people are learning how to remake learning for, for K through 12. And I think it's amazing, but I talk to people and they don't even know what's happening. And I'm like, wow, you should get your city, you should get your community, your town to be part of the Remake Learning Days. If you Google Remake Learning, you'll find all about it. And, and it's wonderful stuff. And they've really come up with a, a kind of playbook to start implementing this in your town or in your community and things like that. So, so I see a lot of hope there. Um, but it's, it, a lot of it is this missing connection.
Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's not necessarily going to come through the, through the top down, you know, uh, administration side of things. I think it's got to be a little bit more. People have to be curious. Yeah. Organic and, connections. And, um, yeah. I think more organic connections. Yeah. yeah. So b- before we go, just, uh, 30 seconds on what, what are you doing at Hire Guide? Uh, what, what's Hire mm-hmm. Guide do? Uh, what, what's our big differentiator? So, uh, so I'm an advisor there and I've been helping them build a sort of leadership community and think about social impact. Like how do we actually level the field? So Hire Guide is focused on, there are a lot of companies that have been focused on how do you recruit people? How do you screen people? But then when you get in the room to actually be with a, in an interview where it's a real human, human conversation, there's not much there to help you. So a lot of people who are hiring managers kind of wing it. They just sort of, they Google good questions on, you know, for this job or something on, on, on Google, or they remember what their boss did when they were being hired. And they don't actually understand that a lot of those questions are stereotyped or biased. Mm-hmm. And they could lead you to ending up hiring a lot more people based on rapport, like the person just has to have, has, happen to have charisma, or on pedigree. Oh, they went to Harvard, so I, right. I'm going to trust it. Or I went to Harvard, and they went to Harvard, so they must be good. And you end up getting your stereotypes to, to play up. And we, we end up with no cognitive, cultural, gender diversity. And frankly, there are plenty, and you can find some BCG research reports about this. There are plenty of reports out there that say the more diverse your team is, from the schools they went to, from the cultures they, they grew up in, from, from the places they came from, you outperform. Public companies outperform up to 19% better if you have that richness. So we need that. So Higher Guides focused on that, that idea that if we could actually use structured interviews and use 60 years worth of psychology, behavioral psychology from, from institutional organizational psychology research, we could implement it into a program that would lead to hiring people that actually can do the job, but also focusing on skills and values and potential so that you could actually find people that will fit, but not fit, which is, you know, can turn out to be kind of a a racist way of doing things. You know, I'm looking for fit, which means I'm looking for someone who looks like me, but actually looking for fit that fills a blind spot, right? That actually helps you have a complementary set of skills. And I think that's the exciting thing. And Hire Guide is only 10 months old. And it's made of 12 up to, I think there are at least 12 LinkedIn alumni who just noticed this giant gap. And they're building a machine learning system combined with this, this IO psychology stuff to build a totally new platform to really help de-bias interviews, level the field, and help people. You know, when you're hiring somebody, it's a very consequential moment in your own career. If you hire great people, you look really good and you know, yeah. pushes you. So that's what Hire Guide's up to. And um, they're at hireguide.com. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Well, Mickey, thank you so much uh, for being here. I, I, I've, I've had such a good time uh, talking with you. It's rem- always good to see you, Andy. Yeah, reminiscing about, you know, brought back memories of my uncle and go-karts in his front yard. It's just been fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so I'm Andy Tempty. Uh, you can find all things Andrew Tempty at andrewtempty.com. Uh, you can find the podcast uh, at your favorite uh, podcast service. Please like, subscribe, uh, rate, uh, and uh, we will see everybody next time.